Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rose, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. When did you know that? I managed to stay alive for six years. I'd say it to your face, not say it to oh, you now. Mean, I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely man. <laughs> it's the opening Irish Times football podcast of the week. Irish Times second captain's football podcast of the week. Sorry, gents, I've been away for oh, a week or so. Oh, Welcome back, Aaron. Good to see start. you. Thanks, guys. Oh, my David here, Ken Early and Kieran Murphy. Ready to go. I don't want to start this week off by having a go at referees because, as every manager says, usually through gritted teeth they have a difficult job these referees they, they make mistakes and frankly I do get a little bored with the over analysis of every decision that's made in football which starts immediately after the game when the first question usually a team could win Chelsea could win 17-0 and, or 17-1 maybe and just me to be asked about that penalty decision given against them yeah. what's the reaction so I, I don't necessarily like that strain of analysis but I will start Ken by asking you about the Offside decision against Jan Vertonghen <laughs> from Tottenham Hotspur, which must be one of the worst decisions anybody's ever seen. Yeah, it was a bad one. It was a really bad one. Um, Do you want to maybe just explain the setup here? It was a 2-1 to Tottenham in the last minute of injury time and uh, Pantillamon, uh, the goalkeeper, came up to try and attack a corner. Yeah, to try and get an equaliser for Sunderland. And... Tottenham broke away from the corner and several Tottenham players were streaming towards the Sunderland half. The ball was played ahead of Jan Vertonghen, who was, at the moment the ball was played, five or six yards, I'd say, inside his own half. Mm-hmm. So you can't be offside if you're five or six yards inside your own half. I mean, you can't be offside if you're two inches inside your own half. But uh, he ran on and just knocked it into the net quite casually. Actually, put it away really nicely, I thought. He almost directly bisected the posts mm. from... 45 yards with a little rolling uh, pass into the net and was delighted because it was the second goal of the game and it was offside because yeah. uh, there was only one defender between him and the uh, and the goal line. Linesman noticed that correctly. Yeah, do you think that's why he actually got the decision wrong? Because he, I he thought, so. oh, I've remembered the rule, <laughs> the, the one rule that <laughs> I need to remember. Yeah. The one wrinkle in this offside yeah. thing that I need to remember. He thinks he's onside, but, but he's, he's forgotten that the goalkeeper, <laughs> he's, who's he's, usually there, isn't there in this occasion. It has to be two defenders, not strictly speaking the goalkeeper, two defenders mm-hmm. of any kind. Yeah. And unfortunately, there's only one. But yeah. of course, there's another part of the offside rule. So it was just a little bit too much for his brain to be handling at one moment. There were two wrinkles. 
not just one. Yeah, so that's what. That's what it was important. I mean, he was lucky that it wasn't uh, important. Uh, it's important to him. You're talking about a big centre half getting. I'd be surprised if Jan Vertonghen's ever scored two goals in one game before. Oh, I wouldn't be surprised. I'd no. say, I'd, well, two goals in one game is yeah, a lot. Yeah. But he hadn't scored in 14 months before the deflected goal that's going to be taken off him by the disputed goal <laughs> battle, uh, which he had scored yeah. earlier that game. So yeah, that's that's unfortunate. But the, uh, I don't know if you covered the story of the a couple of weeks ago now or a week or so ago of the former head of referees having a go at the current head of referees, uh, which seemed like there might there might have been a not a not great relationship between the two. It must be said, but. The allegation was that refereeing standards have slipped abysmally over the last season or two, which it's always hard to say. You have to be watching every Premier League game to get a, a firm grasp of how good referees are now compared to, say, three or four years ago. But there have been some absolute stinkers and uh, mm. of, of decisions it is, and that was probably the worst one. Is there a new Arsenal candidate? I don't know. I don't know. But, but while we're talking about referees, I think it would be wrong not to mention Richard Keyes. Oh, well, any excuse. Um, uh, who, who also uh, is having out referees... Uh, Owen on his always uh, entertaining blog named at richardajkeys.com oh, slash another? richards hyphen blog is there not a no but is there no, not a snappy there sort of title keys, with keys in the pun no keys pun uh, you're a key to sports <laughs> yeah there but we it's, go but it's, uh, it's Richard Keys and then it has a you're and you know look an, or, an ornate golden key a picture uh, thereof to sports mm-hmm. and what is the key what secrets is it are being unlocked by this key today? Um, no, he's just he's just slagging off the referees. He says, uh, he, "For me, he, he says they laughingly released figures this week claiming ninety five percent of the decisions are correct. Penalty box calls are apparently ninety eight percent correct, and offsides ninety nine percent. Who was it muttered the immortal words? Are you serious?" <laughs> uh, Graham Paul. Uh, I believe it was the actor Nick Berry. <laughs> <laughs> Barry, does he mean you cannot be serious? Is that my John McEnroe? Are you serious? Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know who 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 uttered this more words. I say loads of people. It's just like a, I didn't realize it was a phrase, like a you know, it's catchphrase. You know, of all the gin joints and all the jazz and all the words. it's not quite one of those. Like. Um, these stats provide little sucker, says Graham Paul, for the millions who've watched games scarred by poor decisions. It's typical of Mike Riley, an accountant by profession, to hide behind statistics. I believe those stats are flawed. Brackets, so do I. So does every manager in the P League. I, I assume that's Richard Keyes' interjection, but he hasn't really notated it that well. It could have been <laughs> Paul agreeing with himself, as they don't include non-decisions. For example, Rob Green's handball won't be included as the ref played on instead of giving a free kick. Uh, and then Keyes, there's a, there's a quote after that, so I assume what follows is Keyes. As Richard Littlejohn would say, quote, you couldn't make it up. <laughs> <laughs> would Richard Littlejohn say that? He, he might very well. In fact, he probably would. But yeah, he's equally, in fact, Owen, he's even more annoyed than you uh, at the poor standard of, of refereeing, which is scarring very league. Richard Keyes have both um, opinions on referees and uh, animalistic facial hair in common. Mm. Or body hair, at least. And oh, yeah. on the hands as well, probably. But anyway, oh, and that's neither here nor there. The Richard Keyes own McDevitt hairy man trope is well and truly worn out at this stage. So no need to focus on it, on. No need to dwell. Is there a new Arsenal? Ken? A new Arsenal? Well, this was the. Uh, this is what we seem to be witnessing the birth of a new, strange, Arsenal like Arsenal. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the word Arsenal really meant something. Well, it still means something, but it means something quite different from what it meant back in the day. Sometimes words undergo these kind of this kind of evolution, and you know, that's the language changes. 
words mean one thing one decade and then a few decades later it's something quite quite different yeah mm-hmm. and arsenal is one of those words it used to stand for exactly the kind of thing that we saw against um against manchester city which was a gritty defensive resilient uh, performance by a, a cunning ruthless team who scored one goal from a penalty and another from a set piece and broke their opponents hearts um and it, it came to mean something rather different. It came to, in recent years, mean, you know, five goals against you, six goals against you, eight goals against you even. Um, a team that just had no idea how to play these kinds of games uh, and suddenly seems to have got the hang of it again. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit suspicious, Owen. In what way? Because how can Arsenal lose these games repeatedly for years and then suddenly figure out, oh, hang on, what if we try keeping seven men behind the ball? Would that make any difference? I think that Manchester City were very poor. I think that I think that had a bit to do with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tory less Manchester City is. People talk about how reliant they are on Aguero mm. uh, when he's been injured lately. But um, yeah, I mean, Torre's Manuel Pellegrini. I mean, Pellegrini, a man who was who was in a bad mood because this was the day really that his team. I mean, Chelsea have this one's in the bag. Surely, you know, it's got to be in the bag. It looked as though City were gonna make things difficult for them. Now, they are playing uh, January 31st. Mm-hmm. That's uh, City away to Chelsea. Um, we will try to win to close this gap, says Pellegrini. He needs, they really need to win. Otherwise, it's, it's hard to see how they're going to get back uh, against Chelsea. But um, he does make... You, you mentioned Yaya Toure. He said, yeah, you know, we were missing Yaya Toure. He made the point... A lot of you were saying that uh, early at the start of the season when we weren't playing that well that Yaya Toure shouldn't be in the team. And now he's not in the team and we're not playing well. So I guess uh, I'm not really sure what point I'm trying to make, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> one way or the other, we haven't played well quite a lot this season. And I suppose that's why we're five points back. We'll chat to John Bruin about that game and Jonathan Liu of The Telegraph on the January transfer window. If there's any benefit to shopping around at this time of year, right now it's Ken Erdy's Report on Sport. <laughs> So, that's what Arsene Wenger had to say after that. We will talk to John. He was at that game and Phyllis in it. But uh, it was a funny it was a funny one from Wenger because he he sort of, he didn't really seem to be... I, I was thinking if Sam Allardyce had masterminded this victory, he would have, we would have heard all about it. We would have heard every, you know, from, from the very beginning of, the, you know, when the seed was planted in his mind. You know, what if we went to Manchester City and tried to defend and nil-nil? And then thought, we could score the counter-attack. What if I played Sadiq Azorda in midfield with Coughlin just in behind? You know, told Ramsey not to go galloping all over the place. You know, what if we tried that? Fenger's usually pretty open on his tactics, though, is he not? Well, his tactics are usually pretty open. Is that the same thing? <laughs> I mean, he, his Fair tactics point. are usually the same all the time. You know, he's, he's, it's not like he ever really talks too much about them because it's always just the same thing that they do. As Sam Allardyce was pointing out recently, some men just can't adjust. You know, uh, your Rogerses, your Pellegrinis, uh, your Martinezes, and your Wengers. Whereas your Mourinho's, your Ferguson's, and your Allardyce's adjust. He, said, he did say this. I mean, he really did say that. Um, but Arsene Wenger appeared to prove him wrong uh, by adjusting uh, quite a lot. Um, uh, Ramsey saying, We felt in the past we were too open, but today we definitely defended as a team. Didn't give any room in the middle for David Silva to get into those little pockets he loves. A phrase also used by Thierry Henry on the coverage of this game on Sky. 
um, Henri pointing out that Arsenal always had a man standing in between David Silva and the ball. Uh, I don't know if you saw much of Thierry Henry. Uh, I mean, it was obviously pretty good performance from Arsenal to mark his debut. I was a little bit put off by the ads trumpeting Thierry Henry's arrival to Sky Sports. What put you off about that? Well, I grew up with Sky Sports. Well, you didn't, Thierry, in point of fact. You <laughs> never heard of Sky Sports when, when you were a kid. But he does go on to explain that as a footballer, he grew up. With Sky, Sky Sports was there. Yeah. He grew. The Premier League grew. We all grew. If we, you think of me as a baby when I first <laughs> made my debut for Arsenal, then yes, it's true. I did grow we, up. We all learned. We, we almost improved. We almost get better. I didn't have a clue who he was talking about by the end of the ad. Yeah. But I just knew he believe was being insincere. I knew I couldn't believe what he was saying, whatever it was that he was saying. Yeah. And uh, I would always have a large dollop of suspicion about... Uh, that moment before games when they've managed to secure an interview with a player and uh, in this case David Silva yesterday and uh, you come back and you go what do you make of David Silva? What do you make of the player we've just talked to? For me he's the best player on the team. But hang on I don't anyone ever says that. I'm just kind of yeah, if that was Sergio Aguero, you'd probably be saying that about... The same thing. Yeah, or Pablo Zabaleta. Yeah. You'd probably be saying, he's the real heartbeat of this Man City team. He, he could you know, work in, in UFC. Ways, the best player. Terry yeah. could work in UFC. Yeah. Apparently, every fighter in UFC is one of the best fighters in UFC. I was watching it last night. Oh, I know, Ken. Don't worry. We've got a whole other podcast where we're talking in detail about that. So I don't want you to talk too much here. But, you know, Andy Carroll is the best... One of the best center forwards around in the world. Yeah. Sam Allardyce, one of the best, always gets the best out of his players. The thing about Thierry is that he's always, because I think his 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 actual view of the world is a good deal more jaundiced than the one he projects for some reason, this sort of very diplomatic, very sort of, oh yeah, you know, thumbs up to you. I think he actually is looking down on this world from a fairly lofty perspective in his own head. <laughs> and he occasionally comes out with something in this sort of... Uh, you know, diplomatic tone, which actually sounds quite harsh, like, such as, oh, Sam, he always gets the best out of his players. I mean, look at Downing, you know, four goals this season. Last three seasons, four goals. And he's got four goals already this season. Now, is, does that sound like Sam Allardyce is a great manager or Stuart Downing <laughs> really needs, needs, needs to work on his game? nothing too much of Stuart Downing. But look... Um, yeah, well, I, I think with the, the big thing with Thierry, though, is that you're always going to have to read between the lines of what Thierry says as opposed to him actually just coming out and saying something and you yeah. agreeing with it or disagreeing with it. Maybe also if he, if he shows little flashes of temper, the, the real real views will emerge. But in the case of uh, Wenger, I was just mentioning his... You know, whereas from Allardyce, we would have heard chapter and verse on, on how his plan came together. But Wenger was almost like, well, what do you mean? We didn't have a plan. It was just the same as we always do. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it clearly wasn't. For some reason, you told your players, maybe he was afraid of a, of a bad beating. Maybe he thought, I can't really do this any other way now. I'm going to have to just try this. He's against the whole idea of, of playing behind the ball and letting the opponent have the ball and just trying to keep your focus on your position and close down the space. He's against all that. It's not what I stand for. I don't want to win games that way. Won the 2005 FA Cup final that way. But, you know, don't want to win games that way. Um, on the other, on the other hand, winning games is is always good. You know, it's yeah. kind of a there's a seductiveness about uh, winning games. But is it not? Isn't that kind of what he actually has to say though? Because well, for five for five or six years, everyone has just been saying, "Why, why don't you just try and you know defend? <laughs> why don't you pick a midfield that isn't going to just bomb, be caught ahead like of the Davey ball Fitz all said, the time? You know, we have to stop." Goals, the going in. goals going we in. Exactly. You know, that's that's what it comes down to. 
and okay, they finally did that. Now, was that because Wenger said Wenger said something or reorganized things, or was it simply that they played very well against a team that didn't play that well? Well, we'll it is kind of bad though that he's his abs like one of the best performances, one of the best managed performances of the last four or five years of his career, and he can't even take credit for can't it because quite glory in it, like. <laughs> Yeah, he, he, I suppose he does. Wenger is very, you know, he's clever in, in terms of his relations, his social relations. Uh, you know, if he if he stands there and says the players did a wonderful job, you know what I mean. The, the credit reflects back to him anyway. He does, but if he know he knows that if he starts to sort of snatch at the credit in the way that Sam Allardyce is occasionally, I think, guilty of doing, it has a way of receding beyond your grasp you yeah. know anyway um, enough of that we'll talk a bit more about that a bit later uh, obviously Chelsea running riot um, the day before all this and, and proudly surveying the Premier League uh, some, a couple of very Arsenal like goals oh brilliant brilliant goals um, John Terry saying oh me and Gaz uh, we, we didn't have anything to do apart from applaud <laughs> we were just watching this going this is the, this is the best I've known uh, the best football Chelsea have played uh, that he's ever seen, uh, said uh, John Terry. He also surpassed Frank Lampard's appearance record for Chelsea. He's now got only two guys ahead of him, Peter Benetti, and I think it's Chopper Harris. Um, although he's a good, uh, what, he's, he's 80 games behind Benetti still, so he's he's got his insights. Chopper, Chopper Harris had good longevity. Depends if you're doing the chopping rather than being chopped. You've probably got better longevity back in those days. Yeah, I think so. 795 games is quite a lot. <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, but Mourinho had plenty to say, um, and it was such an easy game. He didn't have to bother talking about the game. For once, he didn't have to bother talking about conspiracies or incompetence or how the rules are different for other teams. Um, he had the opportunity to talk, well... A lot about Liverpool, actually, because they're playing Liverpool tomorrow in the Capital One Cup semi-final. Anfield is a historic stadium and everyone likes to play there. I like it, but I have difficult memories. Losing a Champions League semi-final to a goal that didn't cross the line will stay in my mind forever. I cannot forget it. It still hurts. Of course it does. And in the Capital One Cup, there is no goal line technology. So we are not free from it happening again, says Mourinho. Uh, but he also has a lot of conciliatory stuff to say about Liverpool and, and about their uh, totemic captain Steven Gerrard who, who didn't play as far as I recall against Villa uh, and didn't and may not be fit uh, he's a historic player for Liverpool a historic player for the Premier League and an opponent I've always admired and respected we did everything to try and sign him it was almost there I was dreaming of McAuley Gerrard and Lampard in midfield we were playing in a proper triangle without a number 10 and Maka in front of the defenders me Mr Abramovich and Peter Kenyon we dreamed of that his people were open to him joining a top side like Chelsea. But to me personally, he never said he would come. Never. He was always a red, and I think the decision was right. Now, have you ever heard Jose Mourinho talk about an opposing player in such glowing terms? Why might he be doing this? I believe it becomes clearer the more you listen to what he has to say. Uh, I, well, was this your biggest disappointment in the transfer market desk? Well, I have another one when I was trying Lampard to enter. I was almost there and it didn't happen too. I had a couple of disappointments. That's normal in football. But this song that my fans have, I don't like it all. This is the song about Stevie G gave it to Denver Bar. Uh. You know? A couple of times it's good fun, but to go and go and go, especially with a player like him who deserves respect, I don't think you need that. We have so many other songs, you don't need that one. I love this quote when he was saying, in his life, he would never score a goal against Liverpool. Well, he did score a goal against Liverpool for Chelsea, actually, in the, in the 
capital of the champions or the Coca-Cola Cup final in 2005, which I'm sure doesn't really remember. I love these words. I can understand why he was almost, almost, almost coming to Chelsea, but he didn't, and I respect that a lot. Who do you think is the real intended recipient of this little speech from Jose Mourinho? I think you think, and I might think think it too now, it's Frank Lampard. I think Frank Lampard. If only Frank Lampard, a fine player for Chelsea, sure, but if only he could have shown some of the moral characteristics that have elevated Steven Gerrard to that historic pantheon. If only he hadn't thrown it all away at the end <laughs> by joining Manchester City slash New uh, York fairness, City. It's not like Man City are, are playing Chelsea and they're like, oh, wait a oh, minute. Yeah. Very next league fixture. <laughs> Chelsea against Manchester, Manchester City. Lampard, who scored the crucial equaliser in that last game, the, a goal which is really keeping the faint flame of a title race alive in the sense that, uh, you know, what would, it, what would it be? Another three, eight points? Eight points would be too much. We're saying five is too much anyway, so he hasn't even kept it alive. But Chelsea Mourinho just doesn't forget things like that. Yeah, he's, he never forgets. Harry Redknapp? Harry Redknapp under pressure. They lost to Manchester United. Uh, again, um, Manchester United is somewhat uh, clanking and ungainly. Manchester United, who eventually uh, were battered into the lead by Marwan Fellaini. The goal just, just battered it in via several deflections. <laughs> And it kept all the deflections just seemed to make it more powerful as it ripped into the net. Um, not necessarily the most elegant goal you've seen, but an emphatic goal. Uh, Harry Redknapp. Uh, then they, they conceded another one to James Wilson uh, later on. So that was that. And people are talking about, is Harry Redknapp going to get sacked? It's a load of old box, says Harry Redknapp. <laughs> Who would Sky have to interview through a car window if I'm not here on transfer deadline day? said Harry Redknapp, not actually being paid by anybody to impersonate himself <laughs> in, in this instance. He's just doing it. Um, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I'm not a 34-year-old manager trying to make my way in the game. I've been around a long time. I love what I do. I want to continue doing it. I work hard at my job. I'm not an old man. I don't feel like an old man. I haven't got an old man's brain. I have a sharp mind, and I enjoy doing what I do. I don't fear the sack, but I do take results home with me. And when I don't win, I'm no use to anybody because I get low. The day I don't care, I'll say, okay, I'm not skint. I don't have to go to work. And I go and play golf every day. But I care. So hopefully he'll uh, yeah. he'll manage to hang on there. I don't want him to go. I mean... Nobody wants Harry Redknapp uh, to be gone. I, I was reading a bit of his book there. Uh, a man walked onto a pitch. Harry Redknapp has a book of anecdotes. Yeah. Well, sort of, it's, it's almost just a stream of Harry Redknapp consciousness. You know, where he gives his thoughts on the game, you know, the great players that he's played with and against and so on, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't work out if I written up. Really loves the game, was just the biggest bullshitter ever in the history of English football. I'm not sure. It's one or the other. Maybe it's both. It could be both. But anyway. He strikes me as an enthusiastic man. He must. He must love the game. I mean, why else would he be still working at nearly 70 years of age other than love of the game? Steve Bruce? Steve Bruce, uh, there's a man who looks sometimes as though his love of the game is somewhat strained. Um, the way in which, when he, whenever he takes over a club, it always goes well for a while and then just seems to stop going well and then really starts to get bad. And the whole at the moment looks like they could lose to anyone. Um, and yeah, they lost to West Ham. Um, and Steve Bruce called out a few of his players, actually. Uh, by by name, which is unusual. 
second half is awful by us. It's a goalkeeper for me. And Curtis Davis have got to do better in the first goal. We're out of position in the second. We've gifted horrible goals. It's not like us. Curtis Davis, of course, his own son is in the team. Steve Bruce's son, Alex Bruce, you know. He actually went off at halftime with a, a strained thigh muscle, so he's out for a while. But he's criticising another one of the central defenders when his son is one of those defenders. Now, OK, the second half was when it was when they collapsed and Alex Bruce wasn't on the field. It's just an awkward situation, I feel. You know? And your son is playing. I think so. I think it is an awkward situation for both of them, really. I mean, I'm sure, look, you know, they're both in gainful employment. It's better than the alternative. But it's probably better, isn't it, to not play for a team when your dad's the manager. I mean, maybe, maybe there are advantages to your dad being a manager. Well, we'll ask a man here who's been in that situation. Hello, everyone. Kieran Murphy. Grew up <laughs> playing for many years under your father as yeah. a manager of your underage football team. Uh, I didn't. Have, well, I didn't have a choice. You know, he was the manager of the team. I wasn't going to join like Dunmore. He 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 probably be. had a choice actually. Well, he had a choice. Well, not actually much of a choice <laughs> matter either, to be honest. Um, I would say if I was a professional footballer. I would say that that would it wouldn't be my last resort, but I mean I would if I had similar wages being offered to me at two different clubs, one of which was being married, uh, managed by my dad. I would go with the other. Did you team. find that your father went down the route that apparently a lot of kids who are taught by their parents have quite a rough time? Yeah. Their parents have to show that they're not going to favour this child, so yeah. they therefore go a little, little too hard on that that child. Mm. Did you find that as a well? Milton had about sixteen players. And uh, 15 of them had to play. So, so you couldn't be dropped. I wasn't going to... That really wasn't much of an issue. Uh, my brother John would say, would say that my father was cruel. Cruel to him. Um, John would overlook the fact that he was one of the worst Gaelic footballers of all time, though. So that's probably where... You know, I mean, I, I think there's a certain that I'm reaching for there. with Alex Bruce, I would say... He's not he isn't, good enough. He isn't to, quite good enough to avoid any of those yeah. uh, accusations, I think. Yeah. He's a fine player. He's a professional footballer. So. Yeah, I mean, is he is he that much better than say some of the players who aren't getting the team like say for instance Paul McShane? Yeah, I think You know, it, the, well, however it might look to Steve Bruce or you know or to say a disinterested observer, you can imagine that from the point of view of the guys who aren't in the team you know, Alex what Bruce they isn't think sufficiently of it. good enough for them to for that to quell yeah. any like Ch- Cesare Maldini never had this problem, <laughs> yes. but Steve Bruce does. <laughs> so uh, yeah, look, I mean, it's it's obviously not the reason they lost to West Ham. I mean, West Ham, another Sam Allardyce master plan, and you know, when is English football going to give this man the credit he deserves? That's the end. <clears> of manager play. of the year, on is he? Manager, will he be manager of the year? That's the end. He of might be. He might be manager of the year. Well, Ronald Koeman. Well, Ronald Koeman, yeah. He's obviously done a very job in I haven't thought it through. That, well, I, I have to sit down and look at a list. That's the end of Ken Early's Report on Sport. The hairdryer is, is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hairdryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hairdryer, I think, at David Beckham. I thought that he threw a hairdryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. No, no. 
Alright, John Bruin was at the Etihad for the City Arsenal game uh, for ESPN and there were kind of mixed messages coming from Arsene Wenger before and after this game about whether or not this is a new Arsenal as we phrased it earlier on on the show, John. Did they look like they had a different uh, different philosophy to you? Yes, yes they did actually. Um, I think uh, the key player for me uh, is Francis Coquelin, um, a, a guy who I saw play well, it's over four years ago. Well, it was the 2011-12 season in August. Uh, he made his debut in that game where Arsenal lost 8-2 at Man- to Manchester United at Old Trafford. Um, and suddenly, three seasons, four seasons later, he suddenly looked the answer to the, one of the questions that's been raised against Arsenal for so long is, when are they going to have a, a, a defensive midfielder who can both sit and distribute the ball well and tackle. And Coquelin did that job really, really well and gave the platform for Cazorla in particular to uh, play what I think was his best game for Arsenal, and I think some others would suggest that as well. And Aaron Ramsey, who um, was previously a player who I suppose almost was in the Steven Gerrard mould where you uh, perhaps a little tactically indisciplined, always looking for the opportunity to get on the end of things rather than holding back. He he played a great game himself in sacrificing himself for the team. So Arsenal's performance was one which was a team ethic, but there were some great individual performances there. And man for man, if you take them against City, who are a much more expensively assembled team, they actually, I think they won each of those individual duels. So... So often when we've seen Arsenal go away to top four teams, and I think the last time they did win uh, was it October 2010 at City, um, there's been individual mistakes. Uh, they've started the game cold. This time it seemed as if Wenger had a game plan and Arsenal started the stronger and pretty much, apart from a couple of spells, maintain that throughout the 90 minutes. Yeah, and Arsene Wenger was, was quite reluctant, I thought, to take credit for this tactical triumph because he knew that the moment he tried to do that, uh, they would start asking, well, why did you not do this at any point in the last four years? <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there's been... I mean, yeah, he actually was saying oh, the, the reasons behind it was that he actually had players fit and uh, players coming back to form. Uh, which isn't strictly true because they picked up some injuries in the last couple of weeks. Um, as you say, I mean, so often, I mean, the, 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 that 8-2 at Old Trafford's one that stands out. Also, that but this in February last year, they went to Anfield, 4-0 down after, what was it, 20, 20 minutes? minutes yeah. And just, they begin the game cold, as if they just sort of turn up and are going to warm themselves up by playing. This time, there was clear preparation had gone in, uh, as I said before, there's somebody in Coquelin who's going to do the discipline role. Interesting to see. Uh, now, Matthew Flamini is a player who um, I just don't get since he's been back at Arsenal. Uh, yeah, he's, he was great in 2008, but he's he, he's not quite... I mean, it was all it was all about the fact that he was running something at 14 kilometres a game and he can't do it anymore. Well, no, he can't. And what, what he's done instead is point and shout at people. Um, mm. And so what you've got... Now, his cockleman was actually doing the pointing and shouting, but can run. Um, and that made such a difference. And Mikel Arteta is a player who I actually think quite a lot of, but I just don't think he's suited to playing at the base of Arsenal's midfield. And sometimes you, you, clubs can find players who will just do the simple things well, 
Um, you know, you'd think maybe someone like Busquets at Barcelona, who has a very simple job, and that just makes the rest of the team play well. Now, let's get get ahead of ourselves in the Coquelin and say that he's the answer to everything. But in a performance like that, Arsenal actually found a foundation for victory in a way that they haven't done for so often at, at grounds, at teams that you know have, have been superior to them. Is there a danger of overdoing it with our, regard to Arsenal's performance, John? I mean, Yaya Torre's absence seemed to have... Just a seismic effect, a seismic effect, I should say, on the Manchester City midfield. I don't know if you felt the same, but it looked to me like Fernando and Fernandinho were trying to do things that they weren't able to do in an attacking sense, and it ended up that even more of a responsibility than usual was placed on David Silva's shoulders to to get them going creatively, but they could barely get him the ball. Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what happened was that uh, Fernando is asked to play what was previously the Fernandinho role, which is to sort of sit and distribute, and Fernandinho was playing how Toure does, which is collecting the ball and running at pace with it, um, which is how I remember him playing. I uh, saw him play once for Shakhtar Donetsk at Chelsea and being hugely impressed with him. But that wasn't the performance that we saw from him yesterday. He was hauled off of Frank Lampard, uh, had a pretty poor afternoon. Fernando was responsible, actually, for Olivier Giroud's second, uh, for Arsenal's second goal that Giroud scored. And then... Silva found that space, which he which is so you know the, the space he gets in between the sort of between the lines they call it, don't they? Um, that was closed off by Arsenal's if, if, um, work at the base of their midfield, which again, Coquelin was the man in there, and Arsenal pressed up against them. And the other thing I suppose to say is that uh, Aguero looks as if he'd come back just ahead of uh, his full flight. Yeah, he seems to he seems to be sapped a little bit uh, recently by the injuries he's had. But I mean, the the man of the match was, uh, or at least the the official man of the match. I mean, you've been talking about uh, Coquelin's performance there was Cazorla, who was absolutely incredible. Um, maybe not a traditional type of central midfielder. I mean, uh, you know, in English football, you often like to see central midfielders with a bit more athleticism. But maybe actually, you'd like to see players. Generally, wherever they are on the field, with a bit more athleticism than Santi Cazorla has. This was a point Thierry Henry made afterwards. He says, I don't think he, he has the legs to play wide. Um, but in the middle, the kind of skill that he has and the awareness that he has uh, made him brilliant. Would, it, would, you, would you say, though, that maybe he needs to play with somebody like Coquelin, that if he were to put Santi Cazorla in there uh, without a player such as, uh, such as Coquelin, that maybe he might get overrun a little bit? Or, or do you think he can actually kind of continue to flourish in that role for Arsenal? Because he looks better than any of the, any of the other players in the squad um, based on what he did yesterday. Yeah, I mean, Wenger was talking after the game about what makes Cazorla so effective there is that he's actually two-footed, which is pretty rare these days. Um, and so he can play left, right. I mean, towards the end of that game, when, when they knew that Arsenal were going to win, Cazorla was almost playing for laughs, wasn't he? I mean, there was a few sort of uh, you know, uh, dummied passes. There was a bit where he's taking on six players at once. He really enjoyed himself. Uh, you know, in the Premier League, the sort of pressure that's involved in so many games, it's so rare to see somebody play with such enjoyment. Um, but I do think when he's played in that position before, um, a couple of times he will have played with somebody like Wilshire at the base, or, and, and with Aaron Ramsey, and they just don't have the discipline to allow Cazorla to 
have to take on that responsibility. And also, if you look at players like Wilshire and Ramsey, uh, they also want to try and do those same things themselves. And suppose if you give Cazorla the platform and say, okay, you're the central figure, off you go, you create. He's, he's, he's got the ability to do that. It's just that sometimes it's a case of too many cooks for Arsenal. And maybe Wenger, who has always had a habit of playing similar players in his team. I mean, he, you know, the, the sort of, <laughs> I suppose, squat, small playmaker who can play off the flanks is the classic Wenger signing. I mean, you think of Riziki, Cazorla himself. Um, but those players sometimes, I think Riziki's this this case as well, can be more effective through the middle than being pumped out to the, to the flanks where they have to get through a lot of defensive work because Arsenal aren't really the best at defending. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned him a couple of times there. I was going to ask about Jack Wheelchair. Obviously, he didn't play. He's still injured. Um, you know, I just kind of wonder what what his function could possibly be in this team. You know, when it, assuming that he's he's able to get back to fitness, is there actually any, is there a place from there? I mean, what, what, which of these jobs in midfield is he is he actually equipped to do? Is he, is he maybe a player who's just falling between a couple of different stools. He's, he's just not quite outstanding enough in any one facet of the game in the way that Cazorla's got that ability to hold the ball and Ramsey's got that amazing mobility. What does Wilshire have going for him? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, I think the best performance I've seen from Wilshire this season... Was, was against City, probably. Well, there was that, and there was also the performance where he played for England against Scotland, I think it was, where he played as an anchor player and suddenly looks as if he had the discipline um, now that may be to do with the quality of opponents uh, but when he's played as an anchorman for for Arsenal there have been a couple of decent games let's, let's give him some credit but he doesn't have that discipline and I'm reminded uh, it's a play that he was compared to quite a lot when he broke through actually I'm reminded of Joe Cole remember Joe Cole was good at several things but never great at just everything uh, and there was never really a position for him. And I do think this is a problem for certain English players in that you can buy in a player who can do the the midfield discipline role, whereas the English players, because of the, I suppose, uh, the cachet that are attached from being, you know, Mr. Arsenal, want to do more than that, uh, want to show off that they are have more to their game than just doing the simple things. And I think Wilshire when he comes back, he's probably going to have to think about, is he an anchor midfielder? Is he a number 10, a position I don't really think he's got the pace for? Um, his, some of his best football, actually, I remember him playing for Bolton, was on the wing. As you say, Ken, uh, it's a big mystery. I think one of the things about Arsenal is there is such expectation around Wilshire. He's such a fan's favourite. He's the, the player they all look to at the Emirates. Um, could be a telling few months when he comes back. All right, John Brew and brilliant stuff as always. Thanks, Emil. Cheers. The flame hair, flame hair, flame throw of truth, Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Mr. Ken Early. Every so often, I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around to bite someone. John Hayes, I'm talking about, Aaron. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up.
John mentioned Sadiq Azorda there, Ken, running past the entire, or trying to run past the entire Man City team. I think he mentioned the second half. The one I remember was from the first half when he kept beating players. But because he has such quick feet, he was able to get away from them. But the fact that those feet don't move quickly in open space. Quick feet with slow legs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he kept the guy, he was getting a yard on a guy and then the, the, one of the big Man City midfielders would then hunt him down and eventually yeah. he just ended up tackling a guy and booting it out of play. The thing that he has, well, that, that not a lot of players really have is that kind of uh, sense of timing. He's got an unbelievable sense of timing. In, in What he does very well is he uses little delays uh, to kind of fool whoever he's up against. I mean, he's brilliant at that. Um, just these... So you, I think a lot of players in the, in the Premier League especially encourages the culture of trying to do everything as fast as you possibly can and it's, ob- it's obvious why why people think that is the is the best way to do things you know I mean you do it as quick as you can do it quicker than the other guy it's you know you probably got an advantage there and Cazorla kind of understands how to just give it like an extra half second and then do whatever it was it has, he has the ability to sort of throw guys off balance uh, by doing that which is which is pretty rare. You have a theory on Cazorla, man. Well, I'm just not entirely sure that he'd thank the Arsenal jersey makers. For going to, they switched to Puma, yeah. Yeah, and Te- they're they, extremely... They're demanding kit makers. Yeah. They ask a lot of the, of the players. Don't they? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm like... Remember I the Uruguay say, squad's nipples in the World Cup? Of course. Puma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'd, and I would also say, like, per Mertesacker, for a different reason to Santi Cazorla, would also say that... I'm sure he's in better shape than he looks, but he looks emaciated in this jersey because it's like completely bet onto him. And then there's also a very wide neck area there. Yeah. I mean, if if someone was as her suit, not even as owner Richard Keith, but even as myself, yeah. uh, like a tiny amount of chest hair, you're gonna have to. That would be an issue. You're though, gonna have yeah. to treat that uh, you'd, area. You'd, you'd, you'd wax that straight off. I mean, you're in, well, you're yeah, in a Premier, I mean, you're in the Premier League. You know, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are going out onto a field Ryan with Gates. chest hair? Yeah. Ah, gigs. But when that was look, that was nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, it's irresponsible. Do you have any idea how long ago that is? It's irresponsible. You know that there's you know, very shortly the Premier League will be featuring players born in nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. That's a long it's a generation mm. ago in football yeah. terms. It's two generations of football terms. Yeah. And uh Well I just feel that the jersey you wouldn't get away with it now. The jersey just kinda hangs on Cazorla in various areas of the anatomy. You send this a bit of a punch? <sighs> See, I think that's unfair. But I think that there is a slight belly. He's one of those guys that kind of, that, that works out. But instead of, you know, sort of looking lean, he just kind of looks a little like a... He looks like a roadie. Is yeah. What he, <laughs> he looks like. Yeah. He's a little roadie in the, in the middle of, like, you know, 42 years of age. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of Arsenal's midfield. Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, I'm saying, not a problem. No. These jerseys, not a problem whatsoever. Per Mertesacker, Santi Cazorla... A little bit of a problem. I'm sure we're all counting down the days to Sky Sports News's transfer deadline day. Um, plenty of sex toys on show again this year, no <laughs> doubt. But there's a couple. <laughs> of means there's still a week or two left for players to be signed before then, um, because there is actually a transfer window throughout the entire month. We're joined by Jonathan Liu of the Telegraph. Jonathan, just to ask you, you've been writing about this in the past, uh, whether or not, and I'm wondering, do you agree with the idea that most pundits put out there that if you're a title-winning team in particular, any sort of massive moves in the transfer market in January are really, they smack a panic and they're not necessarily well thought out and mightn't actually have a huge impact. Would you go along with that idea? Certainly, in terms of a title-winning team, that does seem to be the evidence. Uh, 
if you, if you look at the teams that do most business in the January window, there, there does seem to be a correlation between how unsettled the team is and how much business they, they do in January. Um, QPR, the, the undoubted kings of the, of the January window, they, they do a lot of business in, in January. So do Chelsea. Teams like Arsenal, um, Everton, Southampton, teams that you, you, you'd say have probably a long-term strategy, they don't tend to do so much. Do these signings have any effect on the final league position? Because you would assume that you know a team that throws a lot of money at it uh, at the problem must must get some kind of payback. Well, if if you look at the the number of players that are that a team signs in, in January compared to the change in league position over the what is it what is it the final five months of the season, there's really no correlation at all. Uh, there's teams that have signed no players and, and soared up the table. Fulham did that about six or seven years ago. And there's teams that have signed you know, seven or eight players in January, like Cardiff did last season, and they've actually got worse. There doesn't really seem to be a correlation. There's, there's teams that, that have signed players, and, and it tends to unsettle them, or it can have a galvanising effect. But it, it's not uh, a surefire solution to, uh, to improving your team. Uh, Jonathan, when you look at some of the ones that have come off or the top clubs, the likes of I mean, Manchester United signed Ever and Vidic, was not in the same transfer window in January? I think it might have been. And uh, Sturridge maybe is one for Liverpool. And some of these guys haven't necessarily inspired. I, mean, I guess some of these players, they've all been huge successes. They weren't necessarily, uh, they didn't necessarily hit the ground running in the case of, the, of Patrice Ever, for example. I think Ferguson has been on the record of saying it did take him a little bit of time. Maybe for, maybe even for the top clubs, might it be a decent idea to get a player in in January almost get, get them accustomed to the club over those few months and it might not have that big an impact on that, that year but they're straight in their pre-season they're Manchester United players they're Liverpool players and they can then attack things in the summer Yeah absolutely and and the other one I'd I point out was Matic the Chelsea side uh, in January and if it, if you are signing a player on a kind of a long term basis with a view to the future then you can actually steal a march on other clubs in January get your business in early uh, and and maybe pay a small premium, but uh, yeah, if, if if you're looking for a long-term strategy, there there is value available in January. Uh, I mean, one of the point one of the points that you make uh, is the premium that tends to be attached to uh, Premier League experience, which is actually gigantic. I couldn't believe um, the scale of this. Yeah, well, depending on on how you look at it but over the last decade generally speaking a premier league player has a premium of about 40 to 50 percent on a on a, a player without any premier league experience um and which which you'd expect there to be a small premium but yeah it, it's pretty extraordinary uh with strikers the effect is even more pronounced because it, you imagine teams that that want a quick effect they want to sign somebody tried and tested who has experience with the division but and when, when they talk about there being no value in, in the transfer in the January window, as managers often do, what they're talking about is value for players who have, who have played in the Premier League and who can do you a job quickly. If you're prepared to go outside the Premier League, uh, as, as Wigan did a few years ago, they signed uh, Valencia and, and Figueroa, um, there is actually value there. You just have to know where to look. I mean, that's the thing that, that sort of puzzles me when you re- when you repeatedly see evidence of... You know, I mean, you mentioned um, uh, those Wigan players. Uh, I mean, Luis Suarez is probably the most spectacular recent example. Um, you know, th- there's so many myths about, you know, players from abroad can't come into the league and, and hack it immediately, which is kind of contradicted by 
uh, evidence that I wonder why it is the clubs seem to have this suicidal attachment to um, to buying the most expensive possible players uh, when when there didn't really seem to be too much evidence that they're any better. Well, yeah, I, I think over the last decade, even in, in, that, in that time, there's there's been a lot of change. Scouting networks have, have improved, but there does seem to be a, a certain entrenchment uh, among among clubs and managers. Um, clubs tend to favour the same agents. Managers tend to, to favour players that, that are familiar. And, and we all know the effect of players who have actually done well against you. There's a, there's a big premium on, on players that have actually performed well against a certain club, that club then going back and, and buying them. It's kind of a psychological thing. Uh, managers like to stick with the tried and tested. And, and when there's something like Premier League survival or a top four players at stake, those tend to be the, the instincts that hold sway. I saw uh, last night Arsene Wenger um, maybe uh, feeling a little bit buttressed by uh, the, the victory against Manchester City, um, is saying in his post-match interview uh, that sometimes it's a blessing to seek internal solutions. I mean, everyone is always going on at him to buy players, um, and he was kind of pointing to the performance of uh, Coquelin, I think, in the in the City game, saying, look, and Cazorla in central midfield and saying, you know, aren't we lucky we didn't go and spend big the way people are always telling me to do when I've got these great players here who can do such a great job. Um, Louis van Gaal, I think, was making a, a similar point recently. It's not about uh, it's not about spending, it's about organisation. Uh, there was a piece written by Jonathan Wilson a little while ago where he, he, he kind of suggested that maybe the, trans, the whole idea of transfers itself is a dangerous addiction, um, which is, which is um, preventing the clubs from focusing on what they should really be doing, which is, uh, I think in Rafael Benitez's phrase, training and coaching their players. Maybe it would be a better idea all round if that's what they all just focused on. I think as a whole, there's no arguing with that. Uh, if, you're, if you're a smaller club, then you really, the statistics show that you really should invest in the academy as, as teams like Crystal Palace and Southampton have done to great effect and actually it, it, it's, a, it's a money spinner in the long run with big teams like Arsenal and Manchester United I'm slightly more sceptical about that because if, if you look at some of the, the players that United and Arsenal have signed in the last 12-24 months the chances of, of the Arsenal academy as, as good as it is turning out a player of the of the quality of Alexis Sanchez are actually quite infinitesimal and for a chairman who probably wants to see a, a, a not an instant return, but a fairly a fairly prompt return on their on their investment, it's a big risk taking uh, taking a gamble like that. I mean, obviously Barcelona is the example, but the chances of, of producing world class players it, it's it's a huge unknown, and I think that's probably why big teams are, are less reluctant, uh, sorry, more reluctant to uh, to go down that path. All right, well, a couple of weeks left. I mean, Jonathan Liu of the Telegraph, thanks a million. Cheers. Thanks. Just one more point about this, Ken, um, before before we leave, and that is that certain managers, it's another layer to the uh, to the question of whether or not you should spend much money in January. Mm. Another layer is whether or not you believe, if you're in charge of a club, you believe in your manager. You've got John Carver there, possibly a sitting duck at Newcastle. Um, would you be giving, I mean, what's his plan for January? Would you be giving him a little bit of, bit of cash or would you be thinking, John Carver's not going to last the season, so maybe we should just hold tight here? Poor old John Carver. I mean, he's he's begging to be put out of his misery um, at Newcastle. He's saying, "I'm for, essentially that he's frustrated that he hasn't been replaced yet as manager, 
that's probably the fan in me coming out. Uh, he says, but this was all um, this is all over the weekend because they've they've headed off now to uh, Dubai, and mm-hmm. uh, where they're going to stay for I think three days, mm-hmm. uh, and then they get a flight back at three uh, forty a.m. Newcastle time on Thursday. Right, and it's just like, why are you doing this? What is what is the point of going to Dubai for for three days? It's just it just seems like a complete it seems like much more trouble than it's worth. Unless you were all going out there to have a massive just booze up. You know what I mean? If unless unless that was what was that that was the sort of carrot at the end of this stick that the Newcastle players were gonna be enticed out to Dubai for. What is the point of going there for such a short it's a quite a long flight and then just as soon as you're there, you're coming back. What well, I really don't yeah. see the attraction in that. I mean, it's a, it's something which obviously it's the other thing that people do at this time of year. They kind of they uh, they try to go to for a bit of warm weather training. Uh, Tuesday will be a full day training session. Morning will be good tactical work. A gym session in the afternoon. Wednesday they'll be off free day. <laughs> so, some will play golf, and so it will be a normal week. And we come back on the Thursday. They were asking at the press conference, uh, "Is it possible to buy alcohol in Dubai?" <laughs> the answer to that is yes, yes, it very much is possible to buy. Alcohol in Dubai. Not everybody in Dubai drinks alcohol, but you can certainly buy alcohol if you've got the money. That's it from us. There's another show out there for you today. We're going to be talking about Munster, Knocked Out of Europe, and also Anna Crean. She's the author of Night Games, Sex, Power, and a Journey into the Dark Heart of Sport. This was the winner of the William Hill Book of the Year uh, award last year, so we've been looking forward to doing this interview for, for a little while. It's pretty, uh, obviously, a, a complex and, uh, and deep, dark subjects here, but uh, Anna's... I've thought quite a lot about this subject and done a hell of a lot of work on it, so well worth listening out for that if you do get a chance uh, through the usual usual means. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening to the football podcast. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Kieran. Thank you, Owen. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, uh, Kieran. <laughs> thanks again. <laughs> Good finish, Ken. Uh, take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.